Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. All right, well, we now know... The whereabouts of SecDef Lloyd Austin, General Lloyd Austin, who was AWOL for time over the holidays. Uh, this uh, was a back and forth between John Kirby and uh, Peter Ducey uh, over uh, Austin's disappearance, failure to inform the White House about uh, these medical procedures, plural, we now know that he had, uh, suffering from prostate cancer which is uh, no insignificant thing. Uh, it's uh, not elective surgery, please. Well, I mean, there may be an aspect of it that was with respect to the post-prostatectomy uh, oh. uh, uh, surgery. But regardless, so uh, Ducey asked the question of NSC spokeshuman John Kirby. Boy, that's long overdue with respect to this administration. Why should we believe anything that this administration tells us about anything ever again? I think we all recognize, and I think the Pentagon has been very, very honest with themselves about uh, the um, the challenge to, to, to credibility by what by what has transpired here, and by what and by uh, uh, how. how how hard it was for them to be fully transparent with the American people. I think we all recognize that. And and wait, wait now, just give me a second now. I, I know you got another one coming here, but but we all recognize that this didn't unfold the way it should have on so many levels. Not just the notification process up the chain of command, but the transparency issue. We all recognize that, and, and I think we all want to make sure we learn from that. I, uh, it's up to you and your colleagues, and it's up to the American people to determine you know, how much they're going uh, to ascribe what happened here to our credibility on every single issue. But in, in every way, Secretary Austin has been an exceptional defense secretary, and he still has the full faith and confidence of the commander-in-chief. Uh, he has led uh, the department at an incredibly dangerous time for uh, our national security interests and those of our allies and partners. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636-DA. Turnkey.pro text line, uh, you know, that's good enough. It, it, look, as long as that everybody at the Pentagon learned from this, that's the important thing. Uh, maybe I don't know too much about prostate cancer but, but uh, or elective surgeries related to it, but he, he went in for the procedure December 22nd, and then an ambulance rushed him to the hospital on January 1st, and nobody knew about it for four days? Come on. Well, first Where's of all, TMZ when you need them. 
Well, first of all, right, I mean, even if the, the story, if it was elective surgery, well, elective surgery gets scheduled, so you would have right. known when you were going to have the elective surgery, and you would have told somebody. And then they said, well, the elective surgery, he wasn't under general anesthesia. He was fully alert through the procedure. Okay, but he was under general anesthesia for the prostatectomy uh, around Christmas time. So why didn't anybody know about that? Because then he was incapacitated effectively for a period of time. Right. Uh, but he was I, I gotta... in ICU, Dan. How How is somebody in ICU not, he's sixth in line to be president and nobody knows about it? Well, the, the other thing, too, I just in terms of this description from Kirby, I, I, I love this. This is what we get with every uh, snafu uh, that uh, comes from our betters in public office. Look, we all recognize that something went wrong here, <laughs> and we all learn from it, and we, still, we all still have confidence in one another, so we're going to be better. This whole... Um, generic we business. This is a way to avoid holding any single person accountable, including like the principal person who should be held accountable, which would be Lloyd Austin. Uh, you know, the, I, I, I believe he understands military chain of command. And so if he applied it to himself, where would he uh, have the buck stop if it wasn't if it was somebody else and it wasn't him. Anyway, I digress. Just It's just such a nice little rhetorical artifice. Everybody understands what you're saying, and everybody agrees with you, and everybody feels bad about it, but the good news is everybody still has confidence in each other, so everybody should just move on. And President Biden said even if he wanted to resign, he wouldn't accept his res- resignation. Uh, so then uh, Ducey has the uh, follow-up. Which is an, an operative question, too. And the follow-up question is, well, if you're going to um, conspire so to withhold information from the press corps about the Secretary of Defense, what about uh, if there was, say, you know, uh, perish the thought, uh, negative health information surrounding the president? If the administration made some sort of Machiavellian effort, uh, across the board to, to to keep this from getting public, then I think your question has merit and, and certainly is a fair one. I don't think it's a fair one because that's not what happened here, Peter. What happened here is the Secretary of Defense, uh, for whatever reason, I can't answer the question why, uh, that information wasn't shared. It wasn't shared widely in the department and it worse? certainly wasn't shared with you the United it's, it's not good. It's certainly not good, which is why, again, we want to learn from this. We want to, we want to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Look, we're on the job. Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't worry about us. Uh, we we get what you're saying. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You can also reach us on our text line, which is fired up and ready to go, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. See, here it was just, I guess, the, I mean, this is the their story. I'm not sure I accept this either, but let's just, for the sake of argument, say it's true. This was just the Pentagon working together to keep information from the White House as well as the country. Uh, It wasn't a situation where we had the whole of government trying to keep information from the public. So that's how it's different. Uh, Now, if there was some information about President Biden that uh, called into deeper question, if that's even possible at this point, his his, physical and mental ability to do the job, 
then um, you can trust us that we would be transparent about that because we've learned from this experience and we're just as upset about it as you are. I mean, we're, we're in two wars right now. And this is happening during a time when the, the Syrians and the Iraq, I mean, there's 14 times during his hospitalization that we've had attacks on U.S. air bases overseas in the Middle East. And he's not there, but he didn't even tell anybody. And Major General Ryan had something to say about this yesterday. Whose decision was it not to alert the president that the defense secretary had prostate cancer? We're providing that information to you as we've received it. Um, We received that this afternoon and and we're providing it to you now. Clearly you didn't know. Did the chief of staff, did the chief of staff know? I'm not going to go into the specifics on who specifically knew what, when, and where. Because nobody knew... uh, well, Anything. somebody knew. Uh, Major General Joseph Ryan is the Assistant Deputy Chief of Staff, uh, for those of you who don't have your Pentagon scorecards at the ready. But, yes, thank, uh, you. The, thank you. The, the, right, so, hey, look, we don't want to get, I mean, it's the same thing. We, we have that information, and we're going to provide uh-huh. it to you, but we're not, I'm not going to get into the specifics of who knew what when. No, of course not. Because uh. this is, like, we're, 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 we are taking responsibility, so none of us individually has to, you see? Kip in Stillman Valley, here in Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, this is wrong on so many levels. Glad to hear you guys are back after the first of the year. Thanks. And, and, but but uh, first off, there was all kinds of news stories on the, on the news that he was all going around and negotiating and having talks during the frickin' uh, holidays, you know. And, and not only that, it, it, this guy, it, it, it's just lies coming from this. And it's broken? No, like the border's broken? No, they don't enforce not only uh, the laws, but the, 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 the chain of command and everything. And we're, at, we're, we're in war. This is uh, just... It's broken. We're going to fix it. Bulldog. Bulldog. Thanks for the call, Kip. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Andy Shaw, venerable newsman. Andy Shaw. I love Andy Shaw. Uh, I liked Andy, but I love this... uh, 
uh, byline for him in the uh, NPR Times, state-funded, state-run media. Andy Shaw is a good government advocate. Um, who is not a good government advocate? Andy Shaw is a corrupt government advocate. Good government, these goo-goos. By the way, Andy Shaw, who, who I always got along with, I, I liked him, even though he's a lib, he, he was um, pretty fair. He wanted to tell a story, not just advance the flag of a particular leftist Paul, although sometimes he did. Um, but he's pretty fair, pretty good newsman, actually. Um, but uh, Andy Shaw was not a good government advocate, and he's not a good government advocate. He's a big government advocate, and there's a difference. All these goo-goos in Chicago that stylize themselves as good government advocates, they're big government advocates. And big government is antithetical to good government. Just a little sidebar before we get to what Shaw had to say about why he's afraid to move about freely in the city of Chicago these days, which is new for him, so he writes. As a 21-year-old college dropout working at a psychiatric hospital in Hyde Park, working, Andy, or residing? Let's oh, be honest. Okay. Come on. I'm, no, I'm kidding. No, he um, doesn't reside there. He has a home in Michigan. He's talking about a 21-year-old. Right. I mean, as okay. a 21-year-old college dropout uh, re- working at a psych hospital in Hyde Park, I frequently took the red line from the most empty 55th Street station to Fullerton near my Lincoln Park apartment at 2 a.m. I would occasionally share the platform and train with a few sketchy folks, but it was routine. I was rarely afraid or anxious over those many years that uh, I reported on Chicago. I felt safe in my sweet home Chicago, even when I traveled alone on foot or on public transportation. But things have changed drastically for the worse recently for me and for our city for reasons I still don't fully understand. Of course you don't. Of course you don't understand. Sure, I'm a 75-year-old senior now, long past the bulletproof vibrancy of youth, but I feel like the same person only traversing a different city that has many more palpable threats. And he talks about uh, taking the blue line to O'Hare and being uh, jarred by the faces around him staring at him or staring off vacuously into the distance, just uncomfortable. He also talks about going to uh, have dinner with his daughter and her husband in Logan Square. Why is she living in Logan Square? I have no idea. Maybe that's a question you should ask her. Uh, and um, saying, you know what? I It's after dark. I'm not going to walk the six blocks to the L-stop. I'm going to ride share at home. Uh-huh. Um, he, uh, you know, of course, strikes a note of optimism. I'm still, you know, I'm still wondering what changed the adverse effects of pa- the pandemic hardship and isolation, question mark, a brazen confidence that ineffectual law enforcement makes apprehension unlikely. Why is the law enforcement ineffectual might be a question he wants to ask himself. Uh, I was heartened to hear about the intermittent success of beat up efforts to catch robbers and the willingness of judges to keep some behind bars. Enhanced police presence has reduced last year's epidemic of shoplifting, robberies, assaults and flash mob gatherings that plagued areas in and around the downtown and lakefront neighborhoods. So maybe the new focus on these robberies will have a similar effect. I don't know what he's talking about. Honestly, this this la- police presence has reduced last year's epidemic of shoplifting, robberies, assaults, flash mob gatherings. Oh, please. Uh-huh. 
And, you know, we can hope for positive long-term impacts to improve education. Oh, sure. How's that been going over the last half century, Andy, since you've been around? Mm. In the meantime, he writes, this once fearless, self-assured city traveler, city traveler, now a wary senior, will not try to become a statistic by taking unnecessary chances at inopportune hours. I won't stay home barricaded behind locked doors, but I sure as hell won't walk alone down any deserted neighborhood street after dark until Chicago feels more like the city I used to know. The city I used to know. 312-642-5600. Turnkey.pro. Answer line 64636DA. Turnkey.pro. Text line. Are you in Andy Shaw? uh, The Andy Shaw camp. Uh, Cue the goatier. Is uh, Chicago just uh, someplace you used to know? I mean, you left the what you used to know, which is the smartest thing you've probably ever done. Um, yeah, well, well, I mean, um, it's, he's, he's, he's very, um, sheepishly describing what we have been talking about for years, which is a city that is disintegrating under its own weight at its own hands. That's what's happening. It's been happening. You know, it uh, takes longer to get to some neighborhoods than others. It takes longer to impact the lives of some versus others. But now it's here citywide. As we told you for many moons, it would be when we used to say things like you can't have 45 wards burned down around you and think you and the five or so wealthy wards are going to be somehow insulated. That's not how it works. So here we are now. What do you want to do about it? Well, you can strike hopeful notes. We hope uh, somehow uh, kids in CPS are given the opportunity to earn a better education. We hope that uh, uh, law enforcement strategies, to the extent that they're allowed by the political leadership in the city and the county, are going to have some uh, marginal positive impact. We hope for these things. We hope for this and we hope for that. Meanwhile, the death spirals uh, rotation continues to increase in pace. 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, Turnkey Depro Answer Line. Our tax line is up and running, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Uh, Andy Shaw might want to recall uh, somebody he was a big fan of, Barack Obama. Oh, uh, something right. he should have learned from the Obama years, that hope isn't a strategy. Jeff in Cal City. Uh, good morning, Dan and Amy. I just wanted to say that that author is a, a racist and a closet white supremacist that wants to harken back to the days of uh, Jim, good old days of Jim Crow. Yes. It, like to me. Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Use the kind of uh, rhetoric that Andy Shaw otherwise tolerates when uh, his fellow travelers use against conservatives. How dare you harken back to 50 years ago when you. Uh, blithely took uh, the uh, L wherever you wanted to go and would walk Mm. carefree at night in the cities. How dare you? What are you trying to say, Andy? I mean, you know, it's just a statistical fact that the majority of crimes are committed by young black men and the majority of crime victims, uh, particularly violent crime, are young black men, too. So uh, that's uh, that's some racist stuff that Andy Shaw is spewing. Let's just chalk it all up to, to systemic racism and move on, because that's not Andy, but that's what Andy Shaw's fellow travelers, that's what they like to do until they get mugged. Well, until Andy someone they care about gets victimized. Right. And it's only a matter of time. But Andy Shaw... Uh 
added Marianne Ahern said, can you help us just tell us WT something seems to be going on with the people who run or influence the direction of Chicago. You have a front row seat, Marianne, like I did. And Chicagoans depend on us to see through the smoke and mirrors and help them see the light. We need your perspective, please. Okay. So we're Brandon Johnson is rarely accessible to the media. But, oh, please I mean, spare me. Like you need you need access to these uh, uh, the, these demagogues in order to describe what they're doing. That that's that's a complete cop out. Um, the idea that the Chicago press corps is going to be part of the answer here. They they they. I mean, with all due respect to, to Andy, um, they have been instrumental in exacerbating all of these problems for as long as I've been around. So that's, um, I mean, in the city, that would have been 25 years, but it, it predates me by, uh, you know, at least a couple of decades. So some good reporters have come and gone fine. And what's left is sort of the same shell in the press corps that you see in all of these institutions and, frankly, the business footprint. But the idea that any of the institution that was cor- so corrupt, so complicit, uh, and is you know completely uh, hollowed out, is going to be some sort of clawing back and awakening a electorate that doesn't even get animated by the most uh, graphic and gruesome sort of, sort of predation, like we talked about yesterday. Uh, Hundreds of cases of sexual abuse of minors at the at the hands of adults in CPS allegations that have been substantiated as credible. And nobody even I mean, there's muted coverage and there's sort of no conversation about it and much less action taken, except some recommendations from an inspector general. But no, the the Chicago press corps, that's who we have to rely on to uh, expose something. What, What is there to expose? It's all right in front of you. The problem is not exposure. The problem is you have a majority of this city that averts their eyes to what is exposed. So as per usual, Andy is offering a very Pollyannish view of the situation as well as these uh, institutions that are supposed to ride to our rescue. The same institutions that brought Chicago to this place all had a role. Joe in Naperville. Hey, you know, I think Andy needs to one-up his game and say, I want to just move into a migrant camp where I could be safe and I could be fed and I could be have free health care. You know, the question that Andy shouldn't be asking is, you know, I want to bring it back. The question he should be asking is, why is it acceptable that it's like this? When did it get acceptable that it's like this? And how can we change the, uh, not having it acceptable like this? Get back yeah. to the journalistic, you know, the, the W's and the H's. He's clearly not doing that. Thanks for the call, Joe. Well, the other thing, too, is, uh, well, I, I don't, you know, Andy Shaw or somebody like him with you know, these, these self-styled Googles. Well, I, I don't agree with what's happening. I, I don't like it. Well, guess what, buddy? You're not in charge anymore. No. This is the you same thing. We have a front row seat anymore. This is the same thing we had to tell the Irish Mafia. Uh, they, apparently, they didn't get the message with Lightfoot, so uh, the city doubled down and gave you BLM Brandon. Hey, hey, you don't like it? Well, that's tough. You're not in charge anymore. And by the way, we didn't like it when you were in charge. So we're going to do to you what you did to us. How do you like that? Mike on the southwest side. How you doing? Um, I'm uh, 
I'm a truck driver, and I've been challenged uh, a couple of times by uh, people, you know, coming after me and my truck. The city is getting outrageously dangerous, and it's because of the politicians not backing the police and the police not doing their jobs. I just think it's terrible. I mean, I would, it's almost to the point where I have to carry a gun with me for protection in the city. And I think the comment you just made, Hit it right on the head. Thanks for the call, Mike. Appreciate it. Uh, Craig, Mount Greenwood. Oh, hey, good morning, Dan and Amy, and uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, when I hear that uh, letter that Andy Shaw wrote, I think of uh, just a leftist foot soldier, uh, state-run media guy who get just part of the whole thing because 75 years old, living in this, this city, uh, reporting on things, seeing what's going on. As the left, leftist after leftist just uh, take and destroy this place and everything. And the way he talks about it and everything, oh, something just happened in that. It's all bulldog. What a, what a disaster kind of a letter and everything that just exposed himself as a foot soldier of the state run media, as far as I'm concerned. Thanks, Craig. Um, by the way, a related story since uh, Andy Shaw is sort of regurgitating things that uh, have a loose connection to the truth about uh, crime reduction. Uh, Commander uh, David Harris has been suspended for seven days for inaccurately claiming that crime was down in his district and that he was responsible for it. He claimed that uh, since he he claimed uh, last year that since he took over, uh, crime was down 44 percent, said this uh, in an interview. And then uh, actually. People like CWB Chicago took a look at it, and they found that crime was up 30%. Rounding error. He says it's down 44. It's up 30. So he's suspended for seven days for claiming crime is down when crime is up. So when do suspensions get meted out for Brandon Johnson and J.B. Pritzker? (laughs) Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So, um, lots of happenings yesterday in the... uh, world of Trump's legal wranglings. 
Let's start with uh, his uh, appearance and through his legal representatives before the D.C. Peel's court uh, seeking a dismissal of charges against him uh, in the cases brought by Jack Smith under the theory that he has immunity for acts, official acts he uh, conducted as president of the United States. The uh, headline, uh, of course, was with this exchange you're about to hear was this uh, uh, Trump uh, lawyers say he could assassinate his political opponents and not be prosecuted. That is um, typically misleading from the hysterical D.C. press corps. It's more complicated than that. It's more nuanced than that. And um, by the way, his attorney who argued his uh, case before the D.C. appeals court. Uh, he's not a clown. I know there have been some clown attorneys around Trump over the years. There have also been a lot of clown attorneys that have been on the other side trying trying to take Trump down. And um, Jack Smith and Fawny Willis and Alvin Bragg are some of them, by the way. But uh, D. John Sauer is not one. So here is the actual exchange between Sauer and one of the uh, appellate judges, Florence Pan on this topic and and listen closely because he's making essentially a political process argument and he there are not only cases that are relevant to the discussion but also an understanding of the founders vision for article three courts i mean this is grounded in the constitution this is grounded in musings in the federalist papers so just listen don't read the blaring headlines from know nothings in the dc press corps but, but your I, position is that he can't be prosecuted for that unless it, he's impeached. Yeah, that was as long as it's an official act. I mean, in certain cases, purely private conduct under Clinton against Jones, he'd be subject to prosecution for that as long as he's not in office. Could, but could as long as it's official act. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal what prosecution. What if you weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that? Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, uh, and our constitutional provision and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not... I asked you a yes, no, yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so, so your answer is, is, no. is My answer is qualified, yes. There is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. In these exceptional cases, as the OLC memo itself points out from the Department of Justice, you'd expect a speedy impeachment and conviction. But what the founders were much more worried about than using criminal prosecution to discipline presidents was what uh, James Madison calls in Federalist Number 47, the, you know, the, the newfangled and artificial treasons. They were much more concerned about the abuse of the criminal process for political purposes to disable the presidency from factions and political opponents. And, of course, that's exactly what we see in this case. Well, one more time around between those two for emphasis. Given that you're conceding that presidents can be criminally prosecuted under certain circumstances, doesn't that narrow the issues before us to can a president be impeached? Um, I'm sorry, can a president be prosecuted without first being impeached? Um, and convicted. 
All of your other arguments seem to fall away. Your separation of powers arguments fall away. Your policy arguments fall away. If you concede that a president can be criminally prosecuted under some circumstances. Disagree with that. The Constitution in the Article 2, Section 1 vesting clause, as interpreted very clearly by Chief Justice Marshall in Norway against Madison, says Article 3 courts lack jurisdiction to engage in examination of the president's official acts. That's but been you reaffirmed. You conceded by- that, that Article 3 the- courts can do so if he's been impeached and convicted. The Constitution makes a carefully balanced, explicit exception to that principle in the impeachment judgment clause. So the problem for the separation of powers, the Constitution does this in many other situations where it engages in a balancing. What the framers were most concerned about was not the notion that the president would never be prosecuted for things that outrageous political opponents. What they were concerned about was politically motivated prosecutions. But they didn't say the president can never be prosecuted. They, uh, they set up Correct. the separation of powers and they created a very narrow exception Correct. that would but- allow prosecution in those cases. Right. And the exception doesn't undermine the overarching principle is the point that Sauer goes on to make in response to uh, Judge P- uh, Pan there, Florence Pan. The, um, so she's saying, well, because there is an exception, because there's this balancing that Sauer's talking about, well, then all of your other arguments fall away, and it's just a matter of, of, of uh, it's just a process argument. Impeachment and conviction has to come before prosecution with respect to official acts. So first you have to establish, are we talking about prosecution of, its, of an official act? And then if we are, then here's this process, impeachment and conviction prior to uh, prosecution uh, in a criminal setting. That That... that you see what I'm saying about how different the conversation actually is, the arguments actually are, as as opposed to how it's been sensationalized, uh, how it's been reported in such a sensationalized way, which just further not only um, disinforms through misinformation, to borrow two favorite words of the D.C. press corps, the larger public, but then it just uh, pushes people into their respective camps where no, where where very few actually even understand what the arguments are, what we're talking about here, and the implications. And Sauer, I mean, excuse me, La, uh, um, uh, L- L- Loro, I keep saying Sauer, um, uh, Loro is ma- uh, making uh, uh, he's given the proper constitutional and historical context. Uh, to consider the implications of not ascribing to the uh, process, the political process that the founders conceived. There's some real-world implications. Here we go again. You, it, when the ends justify the means, you don't think about how they can, the, the precedents you set can boomerang on you. And by on you, I don't just mean on one particular partisan camp, but I mean on the country as a whole, if you want the country to remain whole. So uh, Loro, after the uh, hearing, there was a opportunity for Trump to weigh in on this as well. Um, he didn't make much in the way of legal arguments, but uh, to no surprise, it's not his, that's not his role. But Loro, in introducing Trump, sort of nicely summarized in uh, layman's terms what is at stake here. What was very significant today, and I'm sure you all caught it, is the special counsel conceded that if it was President Obama who was being prosecuted for a drone strike, then they'd have to consider immunity. 
But when it's not, when it's President Trump, then they're taking the position that there's no immunity for presidential acts that were required when a president is carrying out his job responsibilities. If we adopt what the special counsel wants, if we adopt what President Biden wants, then we open the Pandora's box to political prosecution after political prosecution after political prosecution. In fact, Joe Biden could be prosecuted for trying to stop this man from becoming the next president of the United States. We don't need political prosecutions. We need political process. Right. So we don't need political prosecutions. We need political process. So, I mean, again, for those cheerleading Jack Smith and uh, Florence Pan here, I mean, it's fine if you're playing devil's advocate, but we know where the D.C. appeals court is going to come down on this issue and then it's going to go to the Supreme Court. Um, but if you're cheerleading this saying, well, eh, but you know, any means necessary to get Trump. OK, well, just remember, if you have a Republican administration that follows a Democrat one. We can wait for Joe Biden to get out of office. And if uh, you have someone so inclined, then they can dummy up a process. I mean, with respect to Biden, it would need to dummy up one potentially. But even if they even if they did dummy up a prosecution, come up with a novel prosecutorial theory like Fawny Willis did in Fulton County, Georgia, to bring a former president before uh, the criminal courts. And we'll just do this over and over again. Every single president. When it's, you know, you go from the party out of power to the party in power. Is that what you want? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. You can reach us on our text line six four six three six. Type in DA then a quick comment. All right, to to translate all that even to even to more layman's terms, uh Donald Trump took the stage and had this to say. I mean Joe would be ripe for indictment. So you're saying that Trump Shouldn't get immunity, but Joe Biden would. I didn't do anything like he did. I ran a great country. This guy's gotten three and a half million dollars from the mayor of Moscow's wife. What's that all about? And that's the least of it. One of the reasons he's so soft on China is because he received a lot of money from China and he's afraid to do anything about it or say anything because he knows he's afraid to say we have a Manchurian candidate in Joe Biden. We have to get him out. By weaponizing the DOJ against his political opponent, me, Joe Biden has opened a giant Pandora's box. As president, I was protecting our country and doing a great job of doing so. And the historians will be saying that. They already are. But just look around at the complete mess that crooked Joe Biden has caused. He's the worst president in the history of our country by far. He's also the most corrupt president. The least I'm entitled to is presidential immunity, just like any other president would get. I'd be the only one that they would even consider not giving me immunity. Because for whatever reason, people are angry that I've done such a good job. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, that guy gets back into the White House and then he has a litmus test for his attorney general nominee. Are you going to? Uh, indict Joe Biden for, you know, crimes related to the Biden Inc. operation. And if you're not, then you're not going to be my attorney general. I'm not going to nominate you. And then so he gets an attorney general that will. Maybe there's a strong case. Uh, maybe there isn't. Uh, the, the, the argument about whether there is or isn't is immaterial. So the people that are cheerleading uh, 
end running the political process that was described by Trump's lawyer, John Laro, in order to get Trump. They'll be cheerleading. They'll be saying, hey, well, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. When it boomerangs back on Biden or some other president or some other politician that they uh, have an affinity for down the road? Of course not. And remember that as part of this conversation. The precedents that we set and the mindlessness of the ends justify the means crowd, wherever that crowd rears its ugly, thoughtless head. Now, uh, in other Trump wrangling news, I mean, we have to mention this because this is wild. <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? Fawny Willis. Yeah, she got a lover boy, huh? A filing alleged by one of the defendants in Fawny Willis's absurd racketeering case against Trump and company. A guy named Roman, Michael Roman, his attorney made a filing on behalf of her client, Michael Roman, mm-hmm. seeking to have the charges uh, against Roman dismissed. And for Willis, the special prosecutor she named in the case, Nathan Wade, and the entire DA's office disqualified from further prosecution of the case. Why? Because, as Amy was alluding to, the special prosecutor that she retained and she pays, she signs off on the bills that he runs up, Nathan Wade and her are allegedly involved in a romantic relationship. Right. They've been and, vacationing together on yeah. Norwegian cruise lines and in the Caribbean, allegedly. Royal Caribbean cruise lines, too, yeah. And she has paid his firm... $654,000 since January of 2022. To prosecute Trump, yes. And they're using those At funds all. yeah, to uh, go on vacations, have nice dinners together. They have a little romance, Dan. Don't Fawny Willis. Fawny Willis has been subpoenaed to testify in Nathan Wade's divorce proceeding. That should be interesting. Well, where more information about the nature of their relationship, which hasn't been which hasn't been denied and it hasn't been confirmed, but a lot of anonymous sources are confirming it. Uh, this is really, really something. Living in a glass house, Fawny Willis. Uh, Stephen Gillers, professor emeritus at NYU Law, said um, a closer look is needed before you can determine whether the indictment should be dismissed. But if the allegations are true, Professor Gillers said, quoting, Willis was conflicted in the investigation and prosecution of the case and wasn't able to bring the sort of independent professional judgment her position requires. It doesn't mean her decisions were, in fact, improperly motivated. It does mean the public and the state, as her client, could not have the confidence in the independent judgment that her position required to exercise. At minimum, it's an ethical breach and uh, everything associated with that indictment against Mr. Roman and the other a dozen and a half defendants is fruit of the poisonous process, uh, one would argue, and I think that is what is being argued, and the whole thing should be thrown out. And the DA's office under Fonnie Willis, what you talking about, Willis, uh, <laughs> precluded from bringing the case against Trump at all. Wow. And he also charged $4,000 for a meeting with White House officials, this uh, Nathan Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, good times in 
the neighborhood. Jay, New Lenox. Hey, I just wanted to comment about, uh, you know, we keep talking about Pandora's box and, and opening up the situation where, uh, you know, another maybe Democratic president uh, could be prosecuted in the same uh, respect. But I feel like the Democrats are doubling down. The deep state is so deep that they don't feel like they're ever going to be removed from power. So they can just manipulate the system and really have no recourse on what might happen in the future. I think that's why they're so they're so um, threatened by Trump. Well, threatened is, is threatened might be the better word. I mean, they're, are they are they confident or are they threatened? You know, I don't think no, they're, I, I don't I think they're I think they're they're taking the sorts of evasive actions they're taking because they uh, do feel vulnerable. Yes, and in, in some respect, I think they do. But I think you're right. I think they do feel. I think they they feel empowered, but they also feel threatened at the same time. And and they don't know what to do at this point. But they're playing the game well, and I think they're doubling down. And they don't believe, because of their deep state being as deep as it is, that they will ever be removed from power one way or another, from whatever aspect they can take it from or angle they can use. They're going to use it, and they're going to continue to do it. If Republicans come into power, they're just going to double down on, on whatever they can to try and to get themselves back in. And, and I don't think that they ever think that they're ever going to be removed from power. Thanks for the call, Jay. Well, as Fonnie Willis might say, it takes different strokes to move the world. Oh. <laughs> Mike in Yorkville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Dan, Amy, thank you for taking my call. And just listening to that last caller, I was just kind of thinking about what he was saying. You know, how do we not know that what they're trying to do to Trump right now is to set up a process that they have a precedent that saves their own heinies? And, you know, just to go back to even some of the stuff that you guys had said about just the whole thing with Austin and all those other things, we could just summarize it. We're all waiting for November so we can get these people out. Uh, I hope that's right. Thanks for the call, Mike. Uh, Jordan Antioch. Good morning. Um, you know, it, to the point of the precedent, and if, if they do this, then that opens up Pandora's box and, uh, and allows other, you know, if there's a Republican administration. I don't think they care about that because I think, I think they understand that. They don't care about it now. Well, but I don't think they care about it in the future either, only because precedent has shown, precedent, the word, that any mindful Republican is not going to go down that road. They're not going to embarrass themselves and possibly destroy their career um, over, you know, this, this kangaroo court crap. I, so I don't think they're concerned that the Republic, it's going to come back to them because I think they're fairly confident and they're, I think they would be right in assuming so that the Republicans are never going to do this kind of thing to them in return. So they can, they're, they're carte blanche. They can do whatever they want. And I think to your other point, about being threatened, I think they are. I think they are scared to death, and I think that's the whole reason behind the guy expanding the Jan 6. I think they want to push that message out even more. And same with Trump, is if you try to defy us, if you try to beat us, this is what's going to happen, so just don't try. But I don't think they're, they're concerned about the future because the Republicans have not shown they're, they're, they're paper tigers. So, anyways, uh, have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Jordan. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more, you listen. The more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer. On AM 560, The Answer. 
If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We were talking about uh, Trump in court in D.C. yesterday before the appeals court, arguing that uh, he has immunity from the prosecutions that have been brought against him. Uh, Also in uh, D.C. court yesterday was one Ray Epps. He was there to be sentenced for uh, the crime he was, uh, well, he pled out to uh, January related to his activity on January 6th. This uh, enigmatic figure, Ray Epps, I'm talking about him for a long time because he was on the wanted list, then he was off the wanted list. He gave this uh, interview to, I think it was 60 Minutes, yeah, it was where 60 he minutes. Yeah. distanced himself from uh, MAGA, doesn't believe the election was stolen anymore, filed a defamation suit against Tucker, Carl- Tucker Carlson, ruined my life, and this and that. <laughs> um, he, here's a compilation of what Ray Epps was doing. Well, not was doing, did on January 6th of 2021, where he was instigating the crowd to go to the Capitol, among other things. Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. What? No! Peacefully. Fed, 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 Tomorrow? I don't even like to say it because I'll be arrested. Well, let's not say it. We need, we let's need to say go. It. I'll say it. All right. We need to go in. Shut the up, Boomer. To the Capitol. Face right. fed. <laughs> we need to go into the Capitol. I didn't see that coming. Okay. We are going to the Capitol where our problems are. It's that direction. Please spread the word. All right, no, Dave, but one more thing. Yeah, so can we go up there? No? When we go in. Are we going to get arrested if we go up there? Yeah. You don't need to get Did shot. arrest us all? And then this last bit uh, was the confrontation between protesters and Capitol Police with the fencing in between the two, and then Epps is whispering in one guy's ear, and then they pick up the fence and sort of push it in the direction of police and then uh, move around police and head to the Capitol. So, um, I mean, that's substantial uh, behavior in terms of instigation, one would think, at least according to the standards that have been set by the uh, U.S. attorney for D.C. and these prosecutions, right? Yeah, I mean, the average sentence for J6 defendants is three years, and he got to phone into his sentencing where other people had to be present. I mean, who who calls into their sentencing hearing? He, you uh, ever heard of that before? He, he re- it's had not during COVID the pandemic. Um, he uh, was given a one-year probation, 100 hours of community service, $500 fine. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment. It's really interesting if you uh, get into some of the 
treatment of apps by this uh, D.C. court, the judge in the case, what uh, both Epps's attorney and the prosecutor argued. Um, one of the things that uh, Epps described himself, uh, how, how, what, what was described in papers, the papers with the court, uh, Epps described a chilling harassment after pro-Trump media commentators suggested he could have been placed in the crowd by FBI agents to incite violence and embarrass the Trump movement. Um, he had to sleep with one eye open. Epps said the harassment forced him and his wife to sell their business and move to another state. Received death threats after Republican members of Congress and conservative media spread false claims. He was an undercover agent who helped incite the Capitol riot. During the sentencing hearing, even the prosecutor made a point of portraying Epps as a victim. Um, the prosecutor said to the judge during sentencing, Ray Epps has been unfairly scapegoated. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he wasn't held in pretrial detention either, like most people were. He huh. would, The uh, prosecutor played a video of Epps telling protesters on January 5th they should go into the Capitol, a video of him moving his hands toward a huge, heavy sign that later injured police officers. That's what I was just describing, what you just heard. Um, the uh, judge said uh, the uh, evidence about that sign was somewhat equivocal and that he, the, that he was a leader on Jan 6th was a vast overstatement. The judge said that Epps' decision to trespass on territory he knew was off-limits was, quote-unquote, serious and may have warranted jail time without mitigating circumstances. What were the mitigating circumstances? He was the only J6 defendant to suffer for what you didn't do, said the judge. In, all, in other words, the only defendant to face threats and harassment because powerful people lied about his actions that day. The judge also noted Epps' early remorse. Thank you, 60 Minutes, for that. Uh, staged remorse and his longtime community service. Yeah. He was praised, the prosecutor praised Epps for his de escalation tactics. What? Yeah. Uh huh. Um, Epps's lawyer didn't want any punishment whatsoever. Epps' lawyer made a big thing about how Epps in a post-Jan 6 interview with a citizen journalist talked about what was happening in J6 being symbolic. His lawyer said to, to Epps it was just a symbolic amplification of his voice. Yeah. I just can't believe he was given a sweetheart deal by a judge who's been really hard on others. I mean, don't forget that 70-year-old nonviolent female that was sentenced to two months in jail. And he gets no jail time? So we have Clay Higgins uh, on Tucker Carlson the other day, the representative from Louisiana, uh, law enforcement background, saying there's evidence that uh, they've cobbled together about J6 that has yet to be released. He uh, suggested as many as 200 FBI assets uh, in and around the Capitol on that day. Well, we don't know. And, of course, the FBI hasn't been cooperative, as everyone knows. This uh, this curious sentence and characterization of Ray Epps' conduct and, and uh, again, also taking him at face value, uh, you know, these, these uh, death, you know, the typical, uh, my life has been threatened, death threats, Whatever. and so on and so forth. I had to move my 
uh, my I, I had to move my business and my family because of harassment. So I, I'd like to see the documentation on that. What is that? What is what is what kind of harassment? What, did somebody say something bad about you on Facebook? Be specific. That's not detailed. I'd like to know what that is. I'd like to know a lot of things. I'd like to know about Ray Epps's 180. I'd like to know how you can be on video instigating and be uh, given this pass af- uh, you know, in comparison to the sentences that have been handed out to others, number one. Number two, I'd still like to understand why you were wanted, then you weren't wanted, then you were charged with a misdemeanor. It's very, very Hunter. It has a very Hunter Biden feeling. You know, we tried we tried to close the door, but we couldn't get it closed, Ray. So we're going to have to give you a slap on the wrist to make this look all official and on the up and up. I'm not. I think he's a federal informant. I always I've always thought he was. Well, I don't know. But I know I have questions and the people with the answers won't give them. And I know that's a problem. Keith and Carol Stream, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Uh, good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, just wanted to put a little spotlight on those videos of Ray Epps. Uh, most of those videos do come from a right-wing, I'm not going to say right-wing, but a uh, contributor from YouTube called Baked Alaska. Yeah. And roughly about a month ago, uh, they were doing a research, and they found that most of the videos of Baked Alaska all had Ray Epps in it, which were thinking that he might have been tailing him. So mm. I just wanted to put that in there just because that wasn't being uh, looked at. Thanks for the call. Baked Alaska is mentioned, but, I mean, the bottom line, and he's not the only source of those Epps videos, too, or some of them at least. But the bottom line is um, the it's not really being disputed what was said. It's not like somebody saying, oh, those videos are doctored. Ray Epps didn't say that. Ray, That wasn't Ray Epps. It's uh it's been photoshopped in or digitally manipulated or something. Nobody's saying that. They're just recharacterizing uh, what he said and did. And again, that still doesn't explain, and, and if it's so innocent, why wouldn't the FBI or the DOJ simply explain it? Why are you on the wanted list and you're not on, then you're not on the wanted list? Why you're not going to be charged and then you're charged? Steve, Northwest Side. I will bet. Every dime I have, every dime I will have, every asset I have or will have, that Ray Epps is a federal employee. I know how these people work. I've worked with them over the years. He is a federal agent. He may not be a sworn FBI agent, but he's an agent for the federal government. And what's galling, what's galling, what really gets me going is the fact that now they announced the other day, if you were walking past the Capitol, didn't participate in the riot, didn't go into the building... You got the risk of going to jail. They're going to come after you. They're prosecuting me. Yep. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but he's not going to do any jail time. Part of the agreement was he gets probation immediately. A year, a year probation, five hundred bucks, and uh, yeah. hundred hours service. of community service. So you said you uh, have, you said you have experience working with these people. In what capacity? As a Chicago police officer, I I made okay. the first Operation Greylord arrest. I think it was like back in 1980. I can't even remember now. I know how sneaky they are. I know how they behave and how they operate. This guy's a fed. And that kid that was on that video, we see when he says, let's march into the Capitol. And that kid's going fed, fed, fed. Right, right. That kid's smarter than anybody. I mean, it was was a thing of beauty. I'm so glad that that guy said that because that's exactly what he is. He's a federal agent. 
Thanks for uh, thanks for the call, Steve. Appreciate it. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Dan and Amy, uh, let's uh, share a story that um, makes you feel good about uh, humanity. We don't get to do that too often because Amy's so focused on politics and the oh, negative. Right. And I just want to talk about happy things. <laughs> uh, remember that Burger King employee who worked for 27 years, perfect attendance, oh. and they got like a stupid gift bag with like a coupon for a big uh, for a Whopper or something? So awful. Right. I mean, it was a horrible way to recognize somebody for 27 years of excellence. Uh, well, get ready when you have your 27th year here at Salem because uh-huh. it's not going to be much better. So just get ready. Make sure you got the GoFundMe, somebody to set up the GoFundMe straight away. Well, somebody set up a GoFundMe page for him after the story went viral and raised about 400 grand for Kevin Ford. Kevin Ford is his name. And now he posted recently what he did uh, with the money that was raised for him and uh, how thankful he is for people's generosity, Kevin Ford. What's up, everybody? It's me, Kevin Ford. Kill Kev, Kevin, 27 years. Uh, Trying to make this fast, but I know everybody's out Christmas shopping. You're in the spirit of the season, the spirit of giving and everything. And I'm trying to get through without crying. But um, I wanted to show you something, something you, you made possible. You, beautiful you. Get for me, just a hardworking guy. Now, I know I need some work. Cut off the haters already. I know it's not a mansion. Uh, but it's mine. I want to thank everyone, everyone all around the world for what you've done for me. Something I never thought would be possible for me. Home ownership. There's a kitchen, master's over there, a couple bedrooms over there. Now, my kids and my grandkids have some place to come visit me. I just want to thank everybody for being a part of this miracle um, and for everything you've done for me and you continue to do for me every day. This is truly uh, an American dream. It's it's a Christmas miracle. I don't have any furniture. Thank goodness people left this couch, but I do have the only furniture that's important. That's right, TMZ. The Today Show and my brother forever, David Spitty. All right. I want to thank you. I want to say God bless you. And remember, love yourself because I love you. God bless you. Thank you. Happy holidays, y'all. Kevin Ford. Well, I got a question. Yeah. You know, he gave you a little tour of the house that he bought. That house ain't no $400,000. What'd you do with the rest of the money, Ford? (laughs) Of course you would ask that. Right. Uh-huh. He decorated yeah. the place, Dan. Okay. No, it's it's not. It's a great story. It's, oh, it's, it's he's, awesome. he's a he's a deserving guy. I mean, it's nice that 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 occurred for him. Yes. And we Very get certificates. It's all right. Certificates of appreciation. You can't put a price on those. <laughs> yes, I frame them and put them on my wall. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com/mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. 
uh, the uh, Federalists uh, reporting on the censorship industrial complex that we've been talking about quite a bit over the last several months, thanks in part to the reporting by Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, uh, two of the reporters that were also instrumental in the Twitter files reporting. Again, men of the left, both of them. You've, we've uh, talked about their testimony before the House Weaponization of Government Committee as well. Well, um, it's uh, difficult to uh, prevent the inertia behind continuing to fund these third-party cutouts. And that seems to be what the, uh, the deep state, for lack of a better description, is doing with the support, obviously, of one political party in particular. Texas Republican Reps Roger Williams and Beth Van Doon write in a letter to the Global Engagement Center's James Rubin, who's a former Assistant Secretary of State. Williams and Van Doon chair the Committee on Small Business, Subcommittee on Oversight, Investigations, Regulations. Uh, the U.S. State Department it continues to fund the GEC, which develops censorship tools for social media companies. The GEC is a State Department sub-agency that funded the development of censorship tools and used government employees to act as sales reps pitching censorship products to big tech, is what uh, Margot Cleveland reported earlier. Through GEC, State Department funded the Global Disinformation Index, which we've talked about, one of these uh, new tools this is a disinformation tracking organization, so it presents itself, working to blacklist and defund sites that it say contain disinformation. Golly, what sites do you think those are? Like the Federalist, the Daily Wire? That's why there's a suit against the, the State Department over this very issue. And this is, again, the pending decision coming down in Missouri v. Biden is about this whole uh, government using third parties to to do unconstitutionally what it cannot do unconstitutionally. It's unconstitutional when they when they do it directly or indirectly, but that's what they were doing. And we saw this in the Twitter files as well. In fact, Rubin and the Global Engagement Center are named defendants in the lawsuit filed by the Federalist and the Daily Wire at all. NewsGuard with uh, board members that include former CIA director Michael Hayden, General Michael Hayden, former DHS Secretary Tom Ridge. Again, developing censorship tools that social media companies uh, may use on the provider side, could use a la carte on the, uh, the user side. But the whole point here is in terms of the where they're going to stay ahead of what is likely to come down from the Supreme Court in Missouri v. Biden about this unconstitutional use of third parties is we won't have the government fingerprints on it anymore. We'll put government actors who know what to do, don't need any instruction, in the same position in these third-party operations and just let them do what they're going to do working with the big tech companies because they know what to do. Michael Benz, former a uh, cybersecurity dude at state. Participation of a devastating Missouri v. Biden ruling is to do a sort of middle out restructuring, whereas instead of having things run out of 
CISA at the DHS or, or, uh, or the State Department's Global Engagement Center, it would be run out of a what, they, what they're calling a middleware company, uh, a, a censorship service provider who sits in the middle between the user and the platform, but is intermediated by essentially intelligence agency and government and major government figures who inform that middleware censorship companies policies and filtering mechanisms. So NewsGuard is an example of this. NewsGuard, of course, has Rick Stengel on its board, who ran the Global Engagement Center at the State Department. Anders Fogh Rasmussen, who was the, the head of NATO for five years in the Obama administration. Tom Ridge, the former head of DHS. And General Michael V. Hayden, who was a former four-star general, head of the NSA, and head of the CIA. So that's who's in control, essentially, of the middleware censorship provider, who is now also doing censorship compliance for this new European Digital Services Act. They're trying to get congressional regulations to mandate middleware so that it looks like it's coming from the private sector when indeed it's again being intermediated by these intelligence cutouts. Uh, for more on this and um, the uh, intel agencies uh, attempt to manipulate presidential election outcomes, particularly if Trump is on the ballot, Pleased to be joined by Georgetown University professor and former CIA intelligence analyst. He's also the author of Neutering the CIA, Why U.S. Intelligence versus Trump Has Long-Term Consequences. John Gentry joins us now. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so a um, lot to talk about, but I, I wanted to get you, and, and by the way, I, I'll, I'll say it before you do, because um, it's interesting, very much like we talk about Taibbi and Schellenberger. Um, I, I've uh, watched a couple of talks you've given. John Gentry did not vote for Trump in 2016, did not vote for Trump in 2020. He has no plans to vote for him in, John, in 2024. That's correct, right, uh, yes. Professor? Okay. So just giving you perspective in terms of uh, you know, politics, read into that what you will. Um, the censorship industrial complex uh, that is being much reported on, mainly by Schellenberger and Taibbi, but not exclusively, um, how, how much of a concern is what you heard Michael Benz describe, what you've seen, I'm sure, from that, the reporting I mentioned? How much of a concern is that for you? Well, I think it's a big concern. Uh, we, we, we have a huge amount of disinformation in the country as a whole, and unfortunately, uh, our, our government, the uh, U.S. government, is uh, not, uh, not trusted by either the left or the right to, uh, to be an adjudicator of what, what truth is anymore. Um, my focus, of course, is more narrowly on uh, on intelligence uh, intelligence officers. Understand, um, and so on, on that uh, score, uh, one of the uh, discussions I saw from you is focus on what you call sort of bottom up politicization of the agency. Uh, what do you? Uh, uh, well, yeah, of CIA specifically. What what does that mean? Well, for, for many, many years, going back to the very beginning of, of the U.S. intelligence community and, and CIA in particular since in, in 1947, there was a, an organizational culture which said very clearly that it was inappropriate behavior to inject or, or suppress, as the case may be, uh, uh, information that would serve something other than the national interest. So that would be personal organizational interests that are material or political or, or ideological in nature. These occur have occurred very rarely in uh, in uh, U.S. intelligence history, but they became very prominent in uh, 2016. And 
having experienced this myself uh, uh, for a short time in the 1980s, it it it, uh, it was a real wake-up call uh, to me. So this is a major new event in intelligence history. Do you uh, you peg that um, to an op-ed that uh, former acting CIA director Mike Morrell penned in 2016 uh, endorsing Hillary Clinton? Yes, that, that was the first of the obvious ones. The fifth of fifth of August, he wrote a, an, an op-ed piece in the in the uh, New York Times, in which he said uh, his 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 uh, career at CIA was a calling it as he as calling it as he saw it, and that's what he was doing now. Uh, but what he what he was doing was two things very differently than than, than it was traditional in CIA. He was he was calling. Uh, a domestic uh, issue, and he was making a recommendation uh, for people to make a policy decision. In this case, voting. So he, he misrepresented, in essence, the the role of CIA to make his uh, his partisan political statement. So, so the, you talk about this bottom-up politicization of the agency. So it's interesting because you know what we hear normally um, is you know we've got a leadership problem at FBI or we've got a leadership problem. At DOJ, but uh, all the rank and file, uh, these are good men and women uh, doing the country's work uh, best they know how, and uh, they're trying to stay out of the political arena. But what your suggestion is, is um, that's not exactly the case. Well, yeah, uh, yes, uh, but, but I think actually still most of the, the people in the intelligence community still are adhering to the old, uh, the old apolitical uh, traditions, uh, but uh, there are uh, loud and vocal partisans who are former intelligence officers who are under much less uh, control or restrictions than, than, than government employees are, per the, the Hatch Act, which prohibits prohibits partisan activity. And the there there is a growing number, uh, but still probably a minority of, of activists within the agencies that express their politics through leaks. So Would the you number call of leaks per number of leaks uh, rose markedly in the in the Trump administration. Mhm. And so would you call uh the first impeachment proceeding against Trump related to that phone call with Zelensky? Would you call that an example of the political activism, the uh politicization that you're describing in your book? Well, it, uh, it was political activism. I wouldn't call it politicization in this case. You had uh, the, the story, as I understand it, is that there was a, uh, uh, a CIA analyst who had been at the, on the White House staff during the, uh, the Obama years, expressed uh, uh, unhappiness with Trump, was sent home, then got, uh, got warning about the, the telephone call from uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, and, and then approached um, uh, the, the House Intelligence Committee, and that, that sent things off to the races. So it wasn't, wasn't politicization in, in altering um, uh, an intelligence product, but it, it certainly was activism in the sense of being an intermediary between a White House person and, and the House Intelligence Committee. So this uh, p- politicization... Um... You know, why should we be uh, concerned about it if it's um, uh, a, a group of uh, loud partisans, but uh, most of them are outside the agency? And uh, I guess if they're not part of this, uh, these uh, censorship gambits, then they're just talking heads on MSNBC or CNN. So what's the big deal? So what's the big deal? There are multiple big deals still, even uh, even though some concerns, I think, are, are overblown. Uh, there, there are a number of important concerns. One. 
when when uh, formers who make political comments uh, in the context of their intelligence expertise talk, that generates uh, di diminished confidence in the intelligence community. Uh, uh, senior decision makers do not have to listen to intelligence uh, if they don't trust it. If it's not credible, they won't use it. And we know from a lot of history that intelligence, for all its 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 uh, uh, limitations, uh, is a help. Uh, what what we we also have uh, is a situation in which. Uh, and the organizational cultures, uh, and particularly the CIA, John Brennan in his book and, and interviews and so on, made the point that he specifically tried to alter the organization of, of uh, the organizational culture at CIA. And we know that when when uh, ideological bias uh, uh, becomes part of the analytic process, that that analytic judgments. Uh, are sometimes mistaken. So if you have then th this kind of uh, mistake, that leads to to uh, uh, worse intelligence anal analysis, which in turn again uh, damages national decision making. And a final a final point here is that not so much for the the formers, but the the current uh, uh, intelligence uh, uh, officers through leaks of purposely inaccurate information are in essence saying they wish to to influence the uh, the democratic processes in the in the country so uh, i would would not argue that this is the the the, the greatest uh, threat to democracy in the country but you have some federal employees who are violating the hatch act in the sense that they are trying to uh, to to uh, influence domestic politics. Now, all of those things are very, very unfortunate from a, a national perspective. Which is uh, the, mo the most corrupting and the most damaging to the uh, agency, let's stick with CIA for, uh, for the purpose of this? Um, what you're describing there that's happening uh, at the analyst level and maybe the managerial level, or what we saw with uh, Mike Morrell being asked by Tony Blinken to write that to organize that uh, that letter that was published before the November 2020 election that included a lot of former CIA saying that uh, the Hunter Biden laptop had all the earmarks of a Russian disinformation right. campaign, right. which is I think I, which I is think more both, damaging. Yeah, I think both of them are, are damaging. We don't really know what the leaks, uh, what the excuse me, what the analytic uh, culture uh, cha uh, uh, change implications are, because we haven't had major failures yet. But the 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 Hunter Biden laptop case is is I think the most obvious, e easy to grasp, and egregious case of the injection of intelligence into into the political processes, uh, as you outlined. Uh, Morrell was asked to do this. He he approached uh, a number of uh, for, former, not current, but former intelligence officers. Uh, all of the ones signed who signed that letter had signed previous open letters. Uh, uh, and the pitch, according to one of the people who uh, was approached, was that this was to help the Joe Biden campaign. The pitch was not, would you lend your intelligence expertise to take a look at this? It was, let 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 us use your reputation for partisan purposes. And for that, in that way, it was highly inappropriate behavior. 
And do you believe that affected the outcome of the election? Oh, uh, uh, you know, I have a political science background. I'd be skeptical of any of any things like that, any any comments like that. But you had a, a drumbeat of these of efforts uh, openly through formers on MSNBC and op-ed pieces and so on, and you had the leaks uh, uh, occurring through the full four years into 2020. And I think they contributed. And uh, I think uh, probably the, the leakers and the formers uh, think that they contributed to uh, Donald Trump's defeat. I think they're probably happy about that. And uh, if, if need be, they will be willing to do that again later on in 2024. So that I mean, so essentially, you argue that the last uh, eight years represents a uh, a break in uh, abuse uh, within the agency and by formers uh, of the agency. I mean, there were you know, there's politics that uh, that that uh, that creep in. That's always been the case, but that this is qualitatively different than in previous periods over the last uh, hundred years, say in America. That's that's what you argue, right? Yes, absolutely. Both quantitative and quantitatively and and uh, and quantitatively and qualitatively different. So, I mean, you know, um, maybe Trump isn't the best vehicle um, available, but but I mean, you just said that the the people who did the Hunter Biden letter would happily do it again. They they clearly have. If you believe that, then you clearly believe they have no concern for the. Uh, legitimacy of the agency in the mind of the American public. So, so how could you go with somebody that they they do support uh, one more time? How would you go with someone who they do do support? They do support, like Biden's reelection, for example. Yeah. Well, they they mainly mainly were going against Trump. So that that implicitly then was for uh, for Biden. All of the activists this past cycle, not. Not before, but this past cycle have been from the political left. So they have been anti-Trump. Uh, they went after Mike, Mike Pompeo. They went after General Flynn, and so on, all for purposes of of uh, of, of of helping uh, the Democratic candidate. So my guess is, to follow up, is that is that we probably see we'll see a new a new crop of uh, former activists, people like. Um, uh, Mike Hayden, as you mentioned, have uh, become uh, very clearly partisan and, are, and probably have had their credibility damaged. But there'll be a new crop that will arise, I think, later on this year. But you, but you don't align with those people in, in terms of what I they're doing. Align with them? No, I don't align right. with them. My my motive, you know, you mentioned earlier on, I'm not a not a not talking about this from a partisan perspective. My my interest, my focus here. Is, is trying to identify what happened from a social science perspective on the one hand, but also trying to uh, uh, convey to to listeners uh, that that uh, this is this is a bad thing from the national perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, po politics in any form in American intelligence is a bad thing because it has consequences of the sort that I that I mentioned. And this will occur whether the politicization is from the political right or the political left. Georgetown University professor, former CIA intelligence analyst and author of the book Neutering the CIA, Why U.S. Intelligence versus Trump Has Long-Term Consequences. He is John Gentry. Professor Gentry, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. 
Listen to podcasts of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, uh, some conservatives in the House Republican Caucus are... None too happy with the deal that House Speaker Mike Johnson cut with Senate leader Pagliacci Schumer that essentially is a restraint on spending. It's not really a cut. I mean, it's a cut, a modest cut over what Biden wants to spend, but that's not much of a win. Um, basically, it's uh, slightly more for defense and about the same for non-defense as last year. So it's it's about restraint, but it's certainly not about uh, slowing uh, the uh, role to America's you know, financial insolvency, to the extent we're not already there technically. But is this the best we could do, given the political landscape in, inside, you know, inside the Beltway? And, um, I mean, n- not that I'm a Kevin McCarthy diehard, but I think the argument about what expectations were uh, on this landscape now uh, it's gone from Kevin McCarthy to a very similar deal under Speaker Mike Johnson. Do you have now an appreciation for the composition of the House Republican Caucus, the narrow majority that exists there, what the what they are and are not willing to do under the leadership of a Kevin McCarthy or even uh, somebody perceived to be certainly more intellectually conservative and talented, Mike Johnson? There's a certain political reality that you have to confront at a certain point in time. Um, but that's not what I hear from some conservative talkers. Oh, Mike Johnson sold us out. Did he? Did he sell conservatives out? Or do you have to plant your feet on terra firma and fight it out and uh, achieve more victories in order to achieve the electoral victories, in order to achieve the policy victories you seek? To help us with that question, please be joined by Steve Moore, economist, Govzilla author. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Mike Johnson sold hey out conservatives. Is that what happened? <laughs> well, look, let's start with the big picture here. I mean, we have a financial fiscal calamity in Washington. I think every one of your listeners knows that. I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, Independent. What's going on in Washington is extraordinarily dangerous for our country. Uh, Biden has come in and added $6 trillion to the debt. It's right now. I think everyone knows it's now just surpassed $34 trillion. Uh, by the way, when I came to Washington, when I graduated from the University of Illinois in, um, in 1983 and, and uh, headed to D.C. Into the, into the swamp, back then uh, Reagan was president, and I'll never forget um, that the debt surpassed the $1 trillion mark. Can you believe it? One trillion dollars of debt. And we thought, oh, my God, this is the worst thing we've ever seen. How could a country borrow one trillion? Here we are 35 to 40 years later, and we're at 34 trillion. And just to give people a sense of what's going on here, under what what we call the Biden baseline, that is to say what he sees, what he would want to have happen over the next 10 years with his budget, it's headed from 34 trillion to more than 50 trillion. So this is. This is, uh, you know, as serious as a heart attack and absolutely something needs to be done about it. Now, I agree with virtually everything you just said, Dan, and that doesn't happen a lot, (laughs) but I think uh, you you nailed it. I think 
um, look, the Republicans have a three or four seat majority right now in the House. That's out of 435. So it's razor thin. Um, that, this is a gang of fools in, in, in the House Republican caucus that can't even get the 218 votes to agree on what day it is of the week. So, you know, it's really difficult for Mike Johnson to corral these people together. And by the way, there's not a, virtually a single Democrat in the House that wants to cut spending. And right. then you've got Chuck I- Schumer running in the Senate. And you've got, of course, the supervillain, which is Joe Biden, who never saw a spending program he doesn't like. So, And, and, I, and I just think- a reminder, just to interject, too, a reminder, within the caucus, that's, uh, that majority caucus in the House, are some Republican big spenders. And we know there's certainly a lot of, of Senate— and there, there are a lot of, of Senate course. Republicans who are big spenders. That seems to be forgotten sometimes. It. Yeah, you better believe it. You're 100 percent correct. You've got, uh, you know, you've got probably 25 to at least 25 to 30 House Republicans who don't want to cut a dime, touch, uh, cut a dime. So, you know, we've been. And here's my point. And look, ladies and gentlemen, if you agree with what Dan and I are saying, and if you think that our country is in great financial peril, which I think most sensible people think we are then really there's only one solution to this problem, or at least the first step. You have to get rid of Joe Biden. Uh, and uh, you, We cannot have another Democrat in the, in the White House now because they, their spending plans will, will send this, this debt to the moon. So I want to keep the focus on, yes, we have a financial catastrophe. The person who created it was Joe Biden. And I'm not explaining – look, the, the fact that we're at $34 trillion of debt is not just because of the Democrats. It's both parties. I want to be clear on that. But, I've, you know, I've been here, as I just said, for 40 years. I mean, there's nobody who's been more financially reckless than Joe Biden, probably in American history. So that's where I stand. But uh, the argument uh, that will be offered, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, unsympathetic to it. Right. Is, um, you know, you have to make arguments. You can't just take positions. And so. The way that you exercise the power you have, in this case, House Republicans, in this case, Speaker Johnson, is to say, no, no, we're not going to spend a dime. Forget this deal, this uh, this right, larger deal right. on, on discretionary and, or on uh, military and non-military funding. We're not spending a dime until we get policy changes on border yeah. security. And if yeah. that okay. if that brings everything to halt and brings the American people's attention into yeah. zero focus on the border, then all the better, because we'll make our arguments, you make yours, and then we'll see where the pressure comes. Well, get 218 votes for that. <laughs> I mean, look, let's be political. What you say makes perfect sense. If you had the votes to do it, Dan, and, mm-hmm. and this is what a lot of my conservative friends are saying. So, um, you know, the problem is, look, there have been 10 government shutdowns in the last 30 years. Uh, the media has blamed the Republicans on nine out of the 10 of those. So show me an example where the government shutdown and, and like there have been occasions when I've been in favor of government shutdowns, you know, back when Bill Clinton was president and that, that kind of thing, when he had his famous battles with Newt Gingrich. But this is an instance where you're just so outgunned. You just have to accept political reality. I mean, the American people voted for these fools. <laughs> They're destroying our country. And the first step to solving this problem is to evict these people. And by the way, a lot of them are the people from the great state of Illinois. Yes, um, we're familiar with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so then um, then there's, I, I guess, then the, uh, the, you turn your attention to uh, the border post this spending yeah. deal. And yeah. you um, you make the case that uh, we want to do this and they don't want to do that. And so yeah. 
it seems to me that at minimum you have to be relatively intransigent about extracting uh, substantive, easy-to-understand yeah. policy changes yeah. at the border before you talk about uh, more funding to uh, this foreign actor or that foreign actor. Yeah. So, uh, it's as you know, I, I hail from the great city of Chicago, and so I have a lot of family members who are still there. And my brother the other day, who's actually liberal, uh, sent me this headline from the Chicago Tribune, I think it was over the weekend, saying that something to the effect that uh, the Texas governor, how dare he, he's shipping illegal migrants into uh, the suburbs of Chicago. Right. And, he, you know, he was saying, oh, how outrageous this is, this this evil Republican government from Texas. And I, and I just texted him back. I said, uh, David, you, <laughs> you're the ones who made Illinois. I mean, I know Chicago is a sanctuary city. Is Illinois a sanctuary state? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, so you asked for it. Here they are. How do you I like I want to bust to Kenilworth next. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, yeah. we're waking up today, and I don't know if you know. I mean, I'm seeing. Oh, we care so much about the migrants. We should just let them in. And then they come to their, you know, right down the street. From them. Oh, how do these people get here? I mean, how hypocritical are these liberals? Well, I don't know if you know what's going on. In New York City, James Madison High School, 4,000 yep. students are at Home today, remote learning because two thousand migrants were shipped to their school yesterday, yeah. last night, in the know. you know it, the cloak of darkness. I'm out of my yeah. mind. I am. I, I this know. is, and it's not if it's one. It's going to happen here. It's going to happen in D.C. It's going to happen it everywhere. Is. Well, again, I mean, I'm only laughing because it's so pathetic. Because this is this. You know, what you said is absolutely right. They're shutting down the schools. <laughs> and it's not even remote provide, learning. It's log provide. on and get your assignment. The teachers don't even have yeah. to go online and do Zoom with the classes. You just go online yeah. and get your assignment. It's, and there's it's unbelievable. No that, that, and, and, and again, how did this happen? It's because and, and nothing stopped. The other look, and I'm pro-immigrant. I think immigrants are great for our country, but we have a, have a legal system of immigration. So in Texas, I'm not making this stuff up. In Texas, the governor is trying to build, a, you know, um, fences and put some barbed wire uh, uh, along the border so they can't just all come in. And the and the border patrol, Biden's told, telling the border patrol to cut cut through the, the the barbed wire so the illegal immigrants can get in. Well, well, right, because the federal government has plenary power in immigration, and if they don't want to enforce immigration laws, then nobody enforces immigration laws. And, uh, and, the, and that, that and that generates the response to by That's Abbott right. and DeSantis to make every state a border it's state Abbott. and see how you like it. I, right. Yeah. I mean, it's. It, I mean, I'm just so furious by this because, and then Biden says, "Oh, well, we're trying to. You know, he's saying the border is secure and we're trying to do everything we can." No, they're not. That's, they they want lies. these. And the the question is, why do they want all these illegal immigrants to come in? And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, there is a big election coming up in November. And, you know, they're not checking the citizenship of the people who are voting in a lot of these states. That's true. Well, right. You had that uh, Yvette Clark from uh, Brooklyn say, you know, I need the migrants in here for redistricting purposes. She said the quiet part (laughs) out loud. But I mean, but 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 so I mean, but here's what it comes down to. I mean, this is it may be difficult for people who love this country to hear. But look, if um, if the uh, American people decide to give away their country, well, that's what you can do in a free society. Uh, yep, we're we're a dem- we are a representative democracy, and you know we voted for these people. And how do you like it? But that's why I, I just find it comical 
that all these Illinois voters, I'm hearing from so many of them, and some in my liberal friends, gee, why are all these illegal immigrants coming to Illinois? Well, because you you voted for people who say, come on in, guys, it's all free, and we'll give you free services if you come to Illinois. Which, by the way, the last time I checked, you're running a huge budget deficit in, in Springfield, so where's the money going to come from? Uh, one other uh, issue I wanted to tackle with you, uh, per yeah. your Unleashed Prosperity newsletter, uh-huh. is uh, that that jobs number that came out for December. Oh yeah, uh, a, a little yeah. deceptive. Actually, the jobs numbers we talked about yesterday are a little deceptive generally for 2023 yeah. because they've been driven by uh, government job increases and healthcare right. job increases, and healthcare is basically utility these days because yeah. of the takeover yep. of health insurance. So. Um, but but there's another aspect of the uh, jobs numbers that's a little deceptive and maybe helps explain why still three quarters of the country thinks that, uh, you know, the economy's on the wrong track and they're less well off than they were pre-Biden. So uh, there's one person who doesn't agree with what you just said, and that's Paul Krugman. You know who Paul Krugman is, Dan, you know, the I'm famous left familiar with his work, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he wrote in the New York Times yesterday how great the economy is right now. I'm like... Maybe you should get out of your ivory tower and see what's happening on Main Street, USA. Uh, these, you know, it's funny because the numbers came out on Friday morning at 830. And every once a month when those numbers come out, I do the Fox Business Show with Maria Bartiroma and we talk about the numbers. And when I saw the headline number, which was 205,000 jobs, I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good number. You know, it's a, that's pretty good. That's, we're, we produced a lot of jobs. And then you peel back this onion and everything else in the report is negative. We, more than half a million people um, left the labor force. You know, they, all of a sudden they're just not working anymore. So that's the reason the unemployment rate went down is all these people stopped working for jobs. And then you look at the, by the way, the revisions uh, that they've had this year have been almost a half a million revisions downward. So they keep coming out with these good jobs reports, and then they keep revising the numbers downward. And you're right. The single biggest employer over the last 12 months, Amy, can you guess which industry was the biggest employer? The government. Government. Yes, the local federal government. I, I mean, heard Dan say that the other day. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. So, unfortunately, that number was a lot worse than was advertised. It's still a decent jobs market. I mean, there's still jobs out there for people who are looking for work. But I think the biggest problem, Dan and Amy, is we've got we're missing five million, mostly males between the ages of 25 and 60 who could be and should be working and are not. And we can't figure out why they're not working. But there's another but there's another aspect of this, too. And that's uh, the number of people. Uh, getting a second and third job. Oh, that's the other thing, yeah. So there were more of, of the jobs that were created last month, more of those jobs were second or third jobs than first jobs for people. So if the economy is doing so well, Paul Krugman, why does everybody have to go out and get moonlight and get second and third jobs? Because their paychecks are not keeping pace with inflation. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice wrinkle that uh, has what are been you doing? What are you guys doing at night? I know you're on in the morning. I, I, I don't know. Are you washing dishes at a local restaurant or something down at night? I'm going to start picking up loops again at the local golf course, uh, <laughs> make a little bit of pocket cash. I'm going to uh, drive an Uber. Uh, Steve Moore, economist, Godzilla author. Thanks as always, Steve. Appreciate it. Okay, guys. Have a great week. Take care. You too, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. 
This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Time now for another reason why Dan Proft is single. The uh, (laughs) most compelling installment we've ever done, and it's not close. It was quite the tease, I have to tell you. I'm all snuggled up, ready to listen to this one. The case of the Parises. Seven years, six Cook County judges, seven kids, and after a wife has an affair on husband and files for divorce, and millions of dollars have been transferred to pay for wife's lifestyle, to pay for wife's attorney's fees, Mm -hmm. husband finds himself... At 26th in California, in jail, <gasps> this past Christmas. No. He's now on electronic monitoring. We're talking about a what? family law case. Yes. We're talking about a family law case. This is a civil case. So as corrupt as the criminal division in Cook County is because of the Tim Evanses and all of the political hacks that were elevated to the bench by Madigan and Burke, well, it's the same thing. In all the other Cook County courts, too. You, you cannot have confidence in a system that produces the kind of results like the Marty Paris case. Let me just read from the memorandum in order dissolving the marriage. This is a year ago, December 2nd of 2022. Okay. This is, so this is six years in. Now we're in the seventh year, and I'll explain why. This is Judge Tim Murphy, his order. That as Humphrey Bogart's fictional Rick Blaine stated in the classic American film Casablanca, we will always have Paris, so it may have seemed to the litigants, their attorneys, and to the Cook County, Illinois judiciary in this case as witnessed by a review of the case's progress and history. I mean, it's a nice rhetorical flourish. I'm glad that Judge Murphy was having fun with this. And there is the listing of all of the judges, five at the time, now there's a sixth. And all the uh, lawyers representing the wife and the husband, that's about two pages long over the course of six years. We will always have Paris, the Paris case. Um, For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Marty Paris, the... One of the Parises in this case that we will always have. Cook County seems to always have, but that they won't relinquish. Marty, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, happy to be here, Dan. Or not happy to be here, but uh, happy to uh, be out speaking with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope this is in some ways cathartic, but I also want it to be instructive. And I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners who have had to go through the pain of divorce, as I said, who've had bad experiences and that includes women too women who feel like they've got taken advantage of by the system and by their ex-husband and so forth so but but i mean again as i said just a system that produces the kind of results that we're talking about here is a system that people should have no confidence in and i've got my own stories too i'll tell someday but let's focus on yours um so how how, how does this take seven years how does this run up millions of dollars in legal bills uh, and and how does this continue a year after the dissolution order, such that you find yourself in Cook County Jail, just recently released under electronic monitoring? Well, well, Dan, that's certainly a lot of questions. One thing I want to start with that I think gets lost here a bit is the fact that I, I've never uh, contested 
uh, paying for my children. Uh, the, the only time I've ever been at risk of not uh, being able to pay for my kids' school, my kids' activities, my kids' life of, of privilege was when I was incarcerated. Hmm. And when you're incarcerated, you're stuck with the prospect of how do I possibly follow through with the commitment I made to my kids that I'll always be there for them and I'll always be able to support them and pay for the lifestyle that they've been accustomed to. And that's what's uh, so horrible about this system is the law does provide some safeguards for people like me, but it provides the judges with enough autonomy that they can force you uh, into incarceration, um, not just for paying for something of your kids that I would would and have always been the only breadwinner and voluntarily paid for anything uh, that my kids wanted to do, you know, that I thought made reasonable sense for them. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, certainly there was uh, safeguards on the things they could do. They didn't have carte blanche. Uh, but, but the fact that the judge could incarcerate me over my wife running up, uh, she ran up about $1.6 million of legal fees using uh, three separate attorneys. She was able to get the court to put in an attorney for the benefit of the kids, Howard Rosenberg, who ran up something like $400,000 of fees. He couldn't pick my kids out of a lineup. That puts the total legal fees between the kids' attorney and my wife at $2 million. She hired a financial expert that ran up over $550,000 of fees, so $2.5 million. The amazing thing about the $2.5 million is her main attorney, Don Angelini, who put on the, the case, ran up a $935,000 bill. He never collected one penny from my ex-wife. She didn't. They never put made her put one penny of skin in the game to have an affair, file for divorce, and then contest everything I had uh, that was there to pay for the benefit of my kids and, and the lifestyle that they had become accustomed to which is, is, is really mind-blowing. As, as I think most people understand, uh, Illinois is a no-fault state. There's no fault right. for divorce. You just have to file it and can get divorced. Wait, so how did you end up in jail? So the judge ordered uh, that I was responsible to pay 100% of my wife's legal fees. And then my wife ordered a payment schedule that I had to make the the legal fees on so there's a collection schedule there's a, there's a collection process in the law but in divorce court they can throw out the whole collection process and the whole collection process becomes if you don't write the nine hundred thirty five thousand dollar check to pay her attorney don angelini by x date you're in contempt of court and the punishment for contempt of court is being incarcerated and I mean, and again, I mean, debtors' prisons are unconstitutional, uh, as I understand it. The Fourteenth Amendment, uh, the Congress has passed laws on this, going back to like the early 1800s, and the they, uh, case law is pretty clear. Um, but uh, that's the fact of what you have here. Although uh, Judge Abby Fishman Romanek, I guess she's the judge in this uh, in this matter about uh, payment of legal fees. She uh, allowed you on electronic monitoring despite not paying uh, what, you know, the scheduled number you just described. Why did she do that? Well, 
you know, electronic monitoring to me appears to be just more imprisonment, right? The, 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 the point in contention is me paying costs, yet electronic monitoring allows you 16 hours to travel, including work time. So the prospect that somehow in 16 hours during the week I could go make a living to pay these costs you demand that I pay is obviously completely counterintuitive and it doesn't even add up to the end goal of, her, of me somehow coming up with this $3 million of judgments that, uh, that she is now requiring me to pay. Well, and, and here, the, well, the other thing too, just to, just to be, so so. I mean, the this is not like you're a billionaire and you have the money. You're just sort of digging in on principle. This is you're a real estate developer. You don't have the money, and it seems to me this should be pretty simple. You know, forensic account comes in, says here's the assets, here's the liabilities, and here are the encumbrances on some of the assets, like uh, I don't know, like. Uh, partners in real estate deals and investors in real estate deals and so forth. And so, you know, here's the net net of what is realistic. Uh, did, did that not occur? Well, look, at some level, they would say that occur, right? And the judge has an opinion of how real estate works and what real estate values are. Those of us that are in the business right now know 2023 was a very difficult year for real estate, uh, not to get too far into the weeds of real estate, but Interest rates from 2022, short-term interest rates were like 10 basis points, and they went to 535 basis points, right? So when interest rates rise that aggressively, that impact, most real estate is encumbered with debt. The debt has payment based on the cost of the money or the interest rate. So your payments uh, against your real estate asset went up exponentially, you know, 5,250% if you had short-term money uh, financing those deals, that impacts two things, the cash flow of the real estate and the value of the real estate, right? So many real estate people saw their portfolio values diminish significantly and their cash flow diminish significantly. The system has a collection um, process that allows people who are, have a right to collect debt from you to find out what money you have available and collect that money. But divorce, because they have incarceration, they bastardize the whole collection system and a judge just opinions that you have the money and you should write the check. And the penalty for being on the wrong side of that opinion is incarceration. Are you able to see your kids? Well, it's difficult to see my kids because I'm confined to a house. I don't currently uh, I don't currently have a residence that I occupy in. So I have a friend that's been good enough to let me stay at their house. And again, today's Wednesday. So uh, it's it's called a essential movement day in the electronic home monitoring system. So I'm allowed essential movements between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., which means I can leave this uh, prison, this house that my friend is nice enough to let me stay in, uh, from 8 to 4. So my parenting time, I, I do have parenting time tonight. It starts at 8. I'm fortunate. I have seven kids. Uh, one of my college-age kids is still out on uh, holiday break. So she'll hopefully be good enough to drive my younger kids over here. I'm, I'm only staying a couple blocks from the family residence that I own and pay for. And so hopefully I'll get to see my kids tonight at six when my parenting time starts, but I'll see it inside the four walls of this house. I'll be confined to until uh, next Monday at eight in the morning. 
So, um, so c- concurrent with this uh, collection issue for your ex-wife's legal fees is uh, you're in bankruptcy court. Um, you're filing, uh, you filed Chapter 7, right? So, so you're also, you also have um, legal constraints on paying anything based on uh, shaking out the particulars in bankruptcy court. And that's something else that is that is that is that understood by the Cook County judge here, Romanek? I mean, it's been completely waved off. Uh, she's made, you know, um, sarcastic comments that maybe bankruptcy didn't work out so well for you. The point of filing bankruptcy is I put my estate in the hands of a federal bankruptcy trustee. So everything I have now, everything I own is in the hands of a federal bankruptcy trustee in basically a plea from my side for someone who can understand the financial dynamics of my holdings um, and, um, and satisfy the creditors that I have the ability to satisfy. Uh, I, I filed for bankruptcy the day uh, that I was arrested on the uh, body. It's called the body attachment. They attached my body for a, they attach on my body a $500,000 payment and I'm in jail until I make the $500,000 payment. Before the holiday, she decreased it to 300000 as her but, Christmas gift to me. And then after the first of the year, she decreased it to 150000 I was able to borrow 150000 from family. But when you give the money to the bankruptcy, all the money I have now to the bankruptcy trustee, I'm trusting that he can help sort out the financial obligations that the divorce court has put on me. Uh, the divorce court doesn't like that because there's somebody – else there now in control of my uh, finances. With When you do that, the law provides that you get something called an automatic stay. Everyone has to stop collecting on you because you've given it to a trustee to help sort out for the benefit of your creditors. The state court ignored that completely and held me incarcerated, even though all the money I had had been turned over to the bankruptcy trustee. And and, and 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 part of the reason uh, you're there, as I'm, you know, reading about the the public filings in this case, I mean, there were judgment calls made by Cook County judges along the way that are baffling. For example, um, you tried to quit Oak Park Country Club, you know, your membership at Oak Park Country Club, and the judge wouldn't let you quit your membership because I guess that's part of the lifestyle to which your ex-wife had become accustomed. So you have to keep the membership. So she so she can enjoy the membership oh and go there with her boyfriend that she had the affair with and spend your money enjoying Oak Park Country Club. Is that right? Yeah, both Oak Park Country Club and Union League Club played for many dinners oh and rounds God. of golf between uh, her and her her uh, paramour, as they call them, in divorce proceedings. That's very generous. Um, one of the other things that is uh, an interesting wrinkle here is that her paramour is an attorney at one of the firms that you have to pay under this oh order God. to pay the legal fees. Yeah, and, and, and again, the, the, the whole circumstance is couched in my, my poor wife who doesn't have anything, right? Uh, my poor wife who doesn't have anything is able to afford five attorneys to contest my bankruptcy, including one of which is her boyfriend. Five attorneys. I, uh, okay, uh, it's just a hard and, to process the craziness. And and not, and oh, by the way, the, do I understand? Part of the divorce decree to even have to look for a job 
until my now fourth grader, which is my youngest child, gets to eighth grade. And at that time, she's required to start looking for work. And and what was, I mean, the dissolution of marriage happened, again, as I mentioned at the outset, a year ago, December. So what was she uh, given in that uh, that distribution of assets then? What is she, you know, she has something, and it's including the house. Correct. Yeah, she got access. She has uh, full use of the house, um, which costs about uh, $12,000 a month uh, in payments that I make. In total, she is awarded between maintenance and support approximately $25,000 a month, which means I need to make each month about 40000 because you got to pay Uncle Sam his cut and then, of course, pay for all your expenses after taxes. And um, so, one one other wrinkle here, too. I, I understand that your ex-wife's aunt is a Cook County judge, or what, retired, and she is also the sister of longtime lobbyist and Madigan confidant Bill Filan. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, those, those are all true facts. So those, those are pretty good people who have been pretty supportive on us at least trying to resolve our issues in the best interest of the family, so... Okay. Um, I'm just saying in terms of the system, not not necessarily the family, but the system, um, the relationships matter in the system. And so so um, so so I mean, the, but the bottom line here is you, you don't have what they're demanding and nobody can prove that you do. I mean, it's not like you've got it's not like there's questions about Swiss bank accounts. It's just you've got uh, a, 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 you're in federal bankruptcy court. You've you've had a dissolution of marriage. They've got got the attorneys. They've got the uh, forensic accounts, and you just don't have the money, right? Correct. I don't have the money. If I had the money, there's simple collection tech, simple legal collection techniques they could do to try to get the money. They've they've uh, ignored all of that to use the leverage of a judge who could say no, he has the money, and if he doesn't give it to you, we'll incarcerate him. And 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 what I mean, just uh, just for uh, maybe a, um, sort of an officer friendly, you don't want to go to 26th in California moment uh, for our audience, um, for the kids out there. Um, what was the 26th in Cal experience like over the holidays? Well, it, it's dismal, right? There's all these people with with no future uh, stuck in jail cells staring at a wall, right? I mean, you know. The best thing about Christmas is there's a lot of basketball and football to watch, so the day went fast. Um, you know, my, my cellmate was a 52-year-old, uh, you know, former Southside resident, 52 years old. He had been incarcerated 36 years of his life. I mean, imagine the, the, the life prospects of that poor guy, 36 years, he's actually uh, – uh, clean freak, which is kind of wild, not what you expect somebody who was in on gun charges and attempted murder charges. He was facing between three and 30 more years in prison under the current charges. And I spent three months sharing, three weeks sharing a cell with, with this guy. So it, it uh, produces many stories that I'll have for a lifetime, but none of which were productive in helping me facilitate the thing, you know, facilitate money for the benefit of my kids, opportunity for the benefit of the kids, uh, trying to uh, preserve a business that is, you know, on the ropes when the leader of the business isn't available to run the business. Nothing about it was productive for me, for my kids, 
for my family or for society as far as I'm concerned. I understand it's about $1,500 a day for the state to keep me incarcerated, serving me miserable bologna for lunch. When's your next um, court appearance? Next to court appearance is January 19th. And then hopefully you and can that, get off electronic monitoring. Is that possible? It is possible. I hope uh, I hope to be able to get it off. Electronic monitoring is for, as I understand it, it's for criminals. It was a solution for an overcrowded uh, jail system, and somehow it's been applied to me. You know, from my perspective, in my opinion, kind of haphazardly creating no value for what the purpose is. The purpose is for me to get money so that I can pay these obligations. And I'm limited to 16 hours a week being able to be outside of the confines of this house that I've been, uh, you know, provided housing at. Well, you know what the good news for that guy incarcerated for 36 of his 52 years was? Good news for him. He never ran into Marty Paris's ex-wife. He got away with that. So you skated yeah. on that one. Uh, sorry to have fun at your expense. Marty, yeah. Marty Paris, uh, thanks so much for joining us and going through all of this for the benefit of, uh, for the benefit of our listeners and anybody who has the, uh, uh, the, the, the misfortune to have to uh, engage the Cook County court system. We appreciate it. Good luck out there. Yep. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Amy. Nice to speak with you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM 560. The answer. America first with Sebastian Gorka. Weekday afternoons at three on AM 560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Um, so uh, on the matter of that uh, Alaska Airlines fight that lost its door in flight, yeah, the entire fuselage of the jet, including the uh, plug door, is assembled in Wichita, Kansas, by Spirit Aerosystems. It arrives by train to uh, Boeing's Renton plant. In Renton, Boeing mechanics and quality inspectors complete the cabin interior, adding the wiring, insulation, sidewalls that would cover the plug before adding the seats, gallery, lavatories, and other interior elements. Investigators hope to find the piece that fell somewhere south of Portland and will comb the manufacturing assembly and inspection records. Um, the uh, lack of any deformation around the hole in the fuselage made it look at, like the initial cause may have been a spirit quality control issue, spirit aerosystems that assembles these plug doors. Right. The uh, Boeing MAX 9 fuselages supplied by Spirit last year featured a stream of various defects, including improperly drilled holes in the aft pressure bulkhead and fittings that attached the vertical fin to the fuselage that didn't conform to the spec. Other serious lapses forced Boeing to delay MAX deliveries. In early October of last year, Spirit CEO Tom Gentile was fired and replaced with a former Boeing executive. Spirit Aerosystems. Here's what Spirit Aerosystems is super jazzed about. At Spirit Aerosystems, we know that it takes work to be an all-inclusive, diverse workplace. Spirit also recognizes the value of embracing perspectives from all people, places, and walks of life. Spirit is a company where diversity is a competitive advantage. It's one thing to go out and recruit a diverse workforce 
But the whole idea of strategic diversity management is how do you leverage that talent? It's absolutely imperative that this organization connects all the people in it and gets all the best ideas, the best thinking, diversity of thought, all of those things. It's important for us to challenge ourselves because people come from different experiences and all of those experiences bring new perspective. At Spirit, the most complex problems are solved when employees from different viewpoints have a voice. The future growth of our company depends on it. Spirit operates in a global environment, a very diverse global environment, and so it's important that we get everybody's perspective. Everybody brings something very unique and important to what we do at Spirit. Diversity lends itself to that feeling of all-inclusive when the employee feels they have the opportunity to collaborate and provide their ideas. That really gives... Yeah, you've heard the diversity claptrap before. Uh, Rod Dreher writing about this. To be fair, we have no idea for sure if Spirit Aerosystems' work was at fault here. And if so, why their work broke down? Certainly, I'm not saying that non-white or non-Asian engineers are subpar. I'm saying that if you hire for any reason other than excellence, you are weakening your product or service. Right. What you didn't hear and you never hear in those die diatribes is any uh, talk of excellence. We hire the best people. We have the best engineers. We have the best problem solvers and so on and so forth, greatest designers. No, no. It's all about everybody providing input on everything, and that makes us inclusive and magically that uh, ensures the quality of our product. Well, uh, maybe not. No, and they're just lucky no one died. Well, and so this is the point. If it does turn out, and even if it doesn't, the conversation about the seriousness when you – the seriousness of the potential consequences when you take your eye off the excellence – Target. You take your eye off merit and you get in this business of feeling good about yourself by having, you know, a, 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 a demographically representative workforce, regardless of or at least secondary is the quality. For uh, more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Lionel Shriver. She's written extensively about this over the years. She's a contributor to The Spectator, bestselling author of We Need to Talk About Kevin. And most recently, Abomination selected essays from A Career of Courting Self-Destruction. And even more recently than that, this year, I don't know if it's out yet, we'll ask. Uh, She's got a new book coming out entitled Mania. Lionel Shriver, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, So is uh, is Mania out yet, or is that still pending? Not quite. It comes out in April. Okay, great. Well, good. We have a lot to look forward to. We've spoken uh, about... If if a certain contingent doesn't hate it, I will have... Failed in my mission. (laughs) (laughs) I I assume that contingent, I I think I remember from our conversation, we did a a podcast on my counterculture podcast uh, discussion, that uh, it uh, addresses some of what we were just talking about here, the diversity, equity, inclusion versus merit business. Indeed. And it's been um, gratifying from a distance to see that regime take a hit with the Claudine Gay story. Well, but I mean, but but speak to sort of your perspective on this, and maybe even give us a preview of the uh, the uh, the gist of your new book, Mania. I mean, you know, this is maybe something that brings it home and makes it concrete, makes it more than just about uh, um, uh, you know college admissions and Ivy League schools that uh, are not particularly relevant to most people. Well, the premise of uh, my new novel is that suddenly it seizes the Western world that. Uh, there is no such thing as stupid. <laughs> that all humans are equally smart, 
and cognitive discrimination is the last great civil rights fight. And the, the concept is deliberately designed to express about a millimeter from where we are now. Um, and it's, as you were describing, um, you know, excellence and competence uh, in the novel not only don't matter, but become suspect. And it rapidly it, it, it becomes a, a regime that actively um, promotes people who are dumb. But the truth is that this, uh, this, is, this was a problem with Biden's administration from day one. All of the people he, he, he appointed to the cabinet, to his staff, we were told on a daily basis that what qualified them for the job was that their race or their gender or their sexual preference, but never their competence. And that made me alarmed from the get-go. Right. And it's and, you know, and this is what like Stanley Goldfarb has been saying about medical schools too, writing about for some years now in the journal and elsewhere. It's like, uh, you know, you're, you do a disservice all the way around. You're not focused on competence and so that endangers uh, uh, patient safety and quality of health care provision. And it also um, at the same time casts a shadow over uh, minorities in the profession who may be uh, uber competent, maybe the best in the profession, but because people know that this uh, counting by race and gender and gender identity business is going on, they're rightfully suspect, uh, suspect as to you know, how you got to your position. Which is why, uh, which a lot of people don't know, a majority of black Americans do not like affirmative action. And it, I, I agree, it's a, it's a form of condescension. It's like, oh, you know, you're not going to make it under normal standards, so you need help. And it's insulting. And uh, it also perpetuates prejudice. Because if all the doctors have been, all the black doctors have been admitted to medical school under uh, using much lower standards, then once they become professionals, how are their patients going to feel? You know, are they going to are they going to trust these doctors? Are they going to instinctively feel that they're going to get substandard care? Are they going to be, practically speaking, prejudiced because they they can't assume that these people were trained to the same standard as as another race? So, it you know I. There's very little to be said for this stuff, and I was hoping that, uh, you know, that especially with the Supreme Court decision on uh, university admissions, that maybe we were beginning to see the back of this, uh, but I'm afraid not, that uh, post-2020, the whole George Floyd overreaction has meant that now we've got, uh, we've got affirmative action on steroids. And affirmative yeah. action itself is not a, not an appropriate term because there's nothing affirmative about it. Yeah, I mean, it's the die stuff is pretty, is deeply embedded. So even to the extent that some of it is getting uprooted, there's a long way to go. Um, I wanted to get to, to another topic that you tackled. Of course, we're dealing with it in Chicago, 
uh, well, every state is a border state now in America. And, and that's immigration. And you're sort of of two minds on it because you've been an immigrant yourself uh, throughout your lifetime. Um, but I thought it was interesting, these uh, qualities that you um, identified that it the, the lawlessness at the border, say, in America evokes among so many ordinary citizens, which is both rage and incompetence and the combination of those reactions being a real cauldron. Well, it's funny. I've developed what I have to regard as an unhealthy habit of reading the comments uh, after uh, articles about immigration because I'm less interested in what the journalist has to say beyond the facts. Uh, I'm especially interested in the temperature of, of opinion on the ground. And what really fascinates me is that, okay, I read the Daily Telegraph in the UK. It's a conservative paper. I expect that readership to be upset about illegal immigration in particular. But it's New York Times readers that really surprise me. And we know what generally they're going to be like. It's, you know, that's a democratic readership. They're enraged. I, <laughs> the, those comments are absolutely boiling with fury and resentment. And that was even the case before New York City itself was inundated with uh, migrants from, uh, from the southern border. There's just a feeling of this is out of control, this isn't, this isn't fair to us, we're expected to you know, educate these people's children and give them free health care and put them up for a place to stay and give them food, and we can't let in the entire rest of the world that that would rather live here than there. Yeah, and, but then it, 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 sorry for interrupting, but it, it got worse this sure. morning when 4,000 students were kicked out of their own school because illegals, 2,000 illegals were placed there last night because of inclement weather. And that you know, is not going to sit well at all. That's in New York City, and that's only a matter of time before it happens in D.C. and it happens in Chicago. Well, they're taking over um, athletic facilities in schools. No, they're taking and gyms. They, right, but they, they actually, there's remote learning today for 4,000 students because they've taken over their school and they can't have inter, you know, intertwine the students with the illegals. That's shocking. Oh, it's, un, it's un-American that they're choosing them over U.S. citizens and students who have been locked out, especially in New York, for two years because of COVID. And now they're doing the same thing starting this morning. So I think that's going to be another big black eye for Biden. You know, if you live in New York, nobody puts you up for free in a hotel. No. Right? No, and gets three meals a day and room service. Yep. On housing. Well, but um, no one one can be illegal. No human is illegal. Mm -hmm. The sloganeering Uh that you get in response to these real-world applications of their philosophy. No one is illegal and... And I mean, and and it and basically they're demonstrating what uh, some conservatives have been saying for a long time is, look, they, when they say no one is illegal, they mean it. There's no difference between anybody from anywhere in the world and America. And I agree with them in the eyes of God. But in terms of the difference between being a U.S. citizen and not a U.S. citizen and the rights and responsibilities that and privileges that come with that, they uh, don't see a distinction and they're not making any. Oh, they've been eroding the distinction between citizen and non-citizen for years now. That whole business of making sure that even if you're in the country illegally, and by the way, one's presence can be illegal, 
um, can get driver's licenses. There, there are even moves in some places to allow them to vote. I mean, why should they even bother going through the sometimes arduous process of becoming a citizen? Because it doesn't really accord very many other privileges. And um, and, uh, and what was the process for you to establish residency when you went from America to the U.K. and then U.K. to Portugal? It was very complicated, uh, time-consuming, um, heavy in paperwork, and expensive. Um, and I have just gone through that again uh, to get residency in Portugal. That was a serious nightmare. By the way, all the people who tell you they're moving to Portugal, they're not going to do it. It's too hard. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's one reason I have strong feelings about immigration as a topic, because I have jumped through a lot of hoops in order to follow the rules, and that's the case with all kinds of uh, legal immigrants to the United States. We make it incredibly difficult. Um, and you have to wait for years. And those are some of the people who are angriest uh, about what's happening at the southern border because, you know, they filled out all these forms and they they filed all these fees and they've they've waited their turn. And then there are all these people coming in and, and are treated like guests of the nation. And I'm I'm very sympathetic with that because most of the West's legal procedures – for immigration are onerous in the extreme and uh, and and kind of humiliating you know you have to you have to um, demonstrate you have enough money and you have to produce all these forms you have to get a uh, uh, I had to get a police check for coming to Portugal multiple uh, health insurance policies of every description very expensive and and then to just have an, literally millions and millions of people ignore those procedures and just dump themselves on your mercy, uh, well, it's, it's flagrantly not fair. Lionel Shrivers, contributor to The Spectator, best-selling author of We Need to Talk About Kevin and pick up her latest that's out in April. So she said, Mania is the name of the new book, Mania. Lionel Shriver, thanks so much for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is The Morning Show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.